0: Hebrews chapter 4, we're coming back to Hebrews chapter 4, we've been away from it for a couple weeks, it was so good to have uh, Brother Chris Chimita with us last week, amen, Uh, but I'm looking forward to finishing up, Lord willing, the last chapter of Hebrews chapter 4, open up your Bibles to Hebrews 4, and uh, I'm going to read verses 10 through 16. And Lord willing, we'll we'll look at and uh, walk down through verses 11 through 16. So we're going to back up just a tad there to verse number 10 and read uh, verses 10 through 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. Follow along as I read. The word of the Lord says, For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted. Like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's go to the word of uh, the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would come now and you would help us, O Lord, hear your voice in your word, that your spirit, O Lord, would guide and lead us uh, to all truth. We do pray, O Father, that Christ would be exalted and that your promises, O Lord, would be fixed and anchored within our hearts, knowing that they rest in Jesus and Jesus alone. We thank you, Father, for this time of being gathered as your people to sit and listen uh, to your word and under it being preached. And Lord, how humbling it is to know that you have brought us to this place today out of love and grace upon us as your sons and your daughters. We bless you and we thank you. And we ask now that you would bless your reading and hearing and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, I think it would be helpful if we just do a little bit of a recap of where we're at here in chapter 4. We've been away for a couple weeks and admittedly it is a uh, somewhat difficult chapter uh, because it is such a succinct, compact argument that contains uh, a very tight-knit representation of many aspects of redemptive history and theological understandings that we had to kind of work down through it slowly. And where we left off in verse number 10, as we look backwards before we go into verse 11, we remember simply to walk away with this fact. That the rest of God that the inspired writer was encouraging them to strive for, to not fall short of, etc., etc., the fullest meaning of that rest, first of all, was understood that it was an immediate rest that we already possessed in Christ. Look at verse number three, he said that much. We which have believed the Christians do, present tense verb, enter into the rest. And so there was some rest that we already receive. Our conscience have been liberated from condemnation. Uh, there is now in the Messiah a true forgiveness and peace with God that we, on this side of heaven, until He returns, as we were referring to in Isaiah 60 this morning, we possess and we have. But that wasn't all that was contained in his rest uh, that he was talking about. The rest that he was holding up before their eyes uh, to make sure that they wouldn't grow too weary and tired, that they wouldn't continue to keep pushing forward by his grace and by the rest they've already experienced to obtain the final rest. And we looked at that last time we were in this passage as we considered really the latter half or the middle section there Uh, referring to the rest of a heavenly rest, the Sabbath rest of God, which really God through all of his prophets was pointing toward and he's still pointing us toward today. And that's why he said in verse 9 that there still remains therefore a rest for the people of God. And so as we are coming into verse 11 after the writer has lifted up this beautiful truth of a full encompassing understanding of God's rest, that we have in a small token through the gospel and that we're pointing forward to being totally fulfilled at the consummation of this age in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, his son, who he has spoken to us through. We now come to verse 11 and in our text today where he's going to take this entire argument, which has been, again, very tight-knit together, understanding, using the analogy of the wilderness generation, To help them understand this full incumbency meaning of the rest. And now he takes all of that and he does what any good preacher would do. He applies it. And so in our text today in verse 11 through 16, we have him in a way putting forth before them the question after I've explained to you all of this rest he's saying. This rest you have, you know you have it. You have experienced, you confess, and you profess with your mouth you've experienced it. Oh, but there's more to the rest, and here it is. Now that I've told you all of that, he gives them in verse 11 an exhortation. And then in verses 12 and 13, he gives them an encouragement. And then in verses 14 and 16, he gives them a second encouragement. To strive forward, to keep moving forward, to persevere under the faith in order that they enter into the heavenly rest. And so it's as if, after expounding all of the rest of God, this preacher is putting before them the question, are you going to choose rest or are you going to choose wrath? Are you going to choose rest or are you going to fall short like the wilderness generation and choose wrath? So he puts forth the exhortation in verse 11 that sets the trajectory for the theme of the remaining passages. And let's begin there. Here we have an exhortation. He says, after demonstrating the rest and what it is, that us as Christians, those who profess to have tasted this rest in verse number 3, and who now fully understand that there is yet still a rest, a heavenly rest remaining for us in verse 9, He says, let us labor, therefore, to enter that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. After laying the work of the full meaning of rest in verses 1-10, through now our inspired writer takes up this redemptive theological conclusion down from a lofty theory and says, you must labor now to enter into the rest that I've just talked to you about. This exhortive application that he's doing here as a preacher, it of course wouldn't have been a surprise to this first century Jewish Christian audience that would have heard it. And nor should it be a surprise to us because really it's the conclusion of the entire stream of argument that he began back in chapter 3 verse 7. And then he highlighted again in chapter 3, verse 12. Just look there at verse 12. He, he had an exhortation there as well that's been kind of the thrust and the theme of his entire sermon at this point. In chapter 3, verse 12, he said, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you of an evil heart of what? Same word, unbelief and departing from the living God. And so the exhortation we find here in our text today in verse 11 along with the other exhortations that have led up to this, it demonstrates for us in the mind of this inspired writer, this beloved, you see it in your notes. Passive Christianity has no place in the life of a Christian pilgrim. Passive Christianity has no place in the life of a Christian pilgrim. Especially one who is pursuing the rest that was uh, unfolded for them in verses one through ten. Who understands the rest? Who have tasted, in some sense, the rest in an immediate historical sense, and understands there is more to come? Passive Christianity has no place for a pursuit of such rest. Knowing this, they in the first century and us today must at all cost avoid a form of Christianity that is empty of any real and sincere concern of falling, verse 11 says, or coming short, it could be translated that. After the example of the wilderness generation in unbelief. What does this look like though? To avoid this empty, this empty uh, form of Christianity, this passive Christianity that's not concerned about falling short. What does that look like? Well, to help us, we look once again at the fruit of the negative example of the wilderness generation in verse 11. It was the fruit of unbelief. Now, you see in your notes there that word was also used back in verse 6 when we looked at it. And the word in the Greek carries with it the understanding to remain in obstinate position to divine will. And so if we don't want to slip into passive Christianity and be found as engaged Christians, truly laboring into that rest, we look at the fruit of passive Christianity, which is unbelief, sometimes translated disobedience, with carries with it this idea of being an obstinate position to God's will. I like how one commentator observes this. The word here translated unbelief is used to denote the behavior of those who turn away from God's revealed will. And also, they have rejected the offers of His grace, which, those offers of grace, require something. Repentance and acknowledgement of sin. And so the passive Christianity that's being held forth here, an example that we must avoid, so we don't fall or come short, through unbelief or disobedience, is one that doesn't like repentance and acknowledgement of sin. It's to be avoided at all costs for the pilgrim who is pursuing the rest that's promised. You see, the wilderness generation, they were given not just the promise of the land, were they? But also they were given a divine command to go up and possess that land. However, in obstinate opposition to the command of God, they didn't do it. It was God's revealed will that you go in, not to have all the answers of how you're going to do it, but just obey me. And in obstinate opposition, they said, no, we're not going to do it. Instead, they reasoned, they justified, and through their own imaginations, they somehow thought that they could disobey God's revealed will, His explicit revealed will, and still somehow expect to receive His blessings for it. And therefore, their sin was much more than just disbelief. But also, as verse 11 highlights, it was disobedience. That's the, what the word unbelief really carries with it in its meaning. I think it's interesting. I think I give it to you in your notes. This word that's translated unbelief here in verse eleven is also translated disobedience in uh, Ephesians chapter five, verse six. Look how it's used there to highlight this aspect of this character trait of a passive Christian, this obstinate disobedience to the revealed will of God. Ephesians five, six. The context here is obviously there was a sense of lasciviousness being understood in the Ephesian church. And the Apostle Paul writes, and in the context of them thinking that they could live a life of lasciviousness but still obtain the blessings and the eternal rest of God, Paul says in Ephesians 5.6, Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things, what things he's talking about? Well, if you look in the context, he's talking about sensuality, idolatry, greed, crude jokings even included. He says, because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children, and here's our word, of disobedience. And so with all of this in mind, passive Christianity, which we're to avoid, is that form of external religion which will not bend its pride to God's revealed will. You want to know how to come short of the eternal rest that was uh, uh, exposited from verses 1 to 10? Resist the bending of your pride to the revealed will of God. However, in contrast to that, the engaged Christianity, that is that it's engaged on the journey to the eternal rest. That wants to make it to the eternal rest. Engaged Christianity are those who are seeking by God's grace to enter that rest. And they will test all things as is commanded in Scripture in 1 John chapter 4. By God's revealed will. They will be diligent not to despise God's revealed will through prophesying or teaching. But they will be diligent to examine everything carefully. By God's revealed will. And they will hold fast to that which is, which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.20-22. 20 and they will abstain from that which is wrong and evil. You see the difference? Between the passive Christian and the engaged Christian. One wants to sit under the revealed will of God. And the other wants to flee and hide from it. But what makes the difference really between the passive Christian and the engaged Christian? Is it education? Is it... One was catechized beginning at a younger age. Well, you see in your notes what the difference is. By sovereign grace... The engaged Christian has been persuaded, as we learned in chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, they have been given faith by God and a supernatural work of regeneration. And they really believe the gospel promises made by God, who, in chapter 1, verse 2, has spoken to us in these last days. There has been a supernatural work within their life. That's one of the big differences. They really have been converted. Their eyes have been opened to the fact that they don't know everything. You could say what the gospel really does in conversion, one of the first things it does is it humbles the pride of man, doesn't it? Because you have to admit, I have been wrong. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. And children, this is the first echoing call of the Holy Spirit upon a heart. When you have truly received a call unto biblical conversion through the gospel, that's how it begins. It begins to show you that you are not as good as you think you are. It begins to prick your pride. It begins to grind upon your lofty thoughts of yourself. How do you know you're being called of God in the gospel to repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because God's Word through His Spirit will begin to show you like an x-ray the truth of yourself. That you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. You have not loved your sibling as yourself. You have not honored your mother or father. And adults, lest we get a pass, I'm using the exhortation here to the children, we have not loved our spouses or our co-workers like ourselves. Amen? You see, that's what separates the passive Christian from the engaged Christian. There's been true conversion That's taken place. But then also, you see in your notes, there's a preserving grace whereby the engaged Christian is convinced that while they do stand completely justified before God only because of the sufferings and the death of the Lord Jesus, they as liberated sinners, as the Bible says, use not their new liberty from sin, their new liberty from condemnation for those sins, For an occasion for their flesh. But rather they use the new liberty as born again Christians to love and to serve one another. And from what we learned earlier in chapter 3 verse 13. This can only really be properly demonstrated in the local church context. So the engaged Christian. What separates him namely and chiefly is a sovereign work of God upon his heart that converts him. And upon conversion, it's still the sovereign hand of God that perseveres him and helps him have divine gospel wisdom of knowing that I have been set free from my sins, not to live a life of lasciviousness, not to hear the voice of my Lord in His Word, and to love and to sacrifice and serve others. And it can properly be demonstrated only when you're around other sinners who have been saved by grace. If you're in a little bubble at home in your own little church at home, allow me the term church there, uh, you're not going to have to exhibit too much of that, are you? No, you're not. That's hard enough to do it in our home sometimes, though, ain't it? That's where it ought to start, beloved. Therefore, it's vital for us to walk away from this stated exhortation in verse 11... By making our calling in our election sure. Because that's what really separates the passive Christian that we're to avoid in verse 11 from the engaged Christian is true conversion. Have you truly been converted? As with the wilderness generation who was given a promise, in the immediate sense, the land, and also given a command to go and possess that land... The inspired writer here, I believe, is wishing for us to see that the gospel message, we too, in it, have a promise of forgiveness of sin and eternal rest in heaven, but we also have commands as well in the gospel. And let us never be guilty of misunderstanding our liberty in Christ's gospel with our responsibility to Christ's gospel. Does that make sense? Beloved, those who have entered into Christ's gospel rest, as talked about in verse 3, are commanded in Scripture to now put on the full armor of God and to continue daily work against, what? All things that present themselves against the knowledge of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. This is the engaged Christian. You want to know how you labor and and really... um, Uh, Take this command in verse 11 seriously? You're doing that. And sometimes those thoughts that come against the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're to cast down, nine out of ten times, they emanate from our own fallen flesh still, don't they? It's a daily, daily laboring. His grace is sufficient. We're going to see in a moment to sustain us through it. But take heed here that the gospel promise comes with it. Real gospel commands, beloved. In other words, you see, we're not only pointed to the rest that's promised, but also we're challenged with the command labor, therefore, to enter that rest. Let's move on. Thankfully, God the Spirit, who inspired this exhortation in verse 11, he knows the weakness, doesn't he, of our human frames. And instead of leaving us in limbo with this command, to persevere unto the end, to labor unto the end without any kind of how-to-do-it instructions, He now graciously gives us two encouragements. The first one's in verses 12 and 13, and the second one is in verses 14 through 16. I call them encouragement. I call them promptings. And they're designed, when we embrace them, to move us to live and to act and a properly biblical, balanced application of the fear of the Lord. That's their design. So the preacher just doesn't give the exhortation. Now he gives two encouragements or two promptings for us to stand back and to read and look at and meditate upon, which are designed to help us to live in a balanced application of the fear of the Lord. The first encouragement, as you see in your notes, Comes from a right understanding of the nature of God and His Word. So let's look at that now in verses 12 and 13. The first encouragement for the engaged Christian to help them is to have a right understanding of the nature of God and His Word. Verse 12 For the Word of God is quick, and it's powerful and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the dividing sunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and a discerner of thoughts in the intents of the heart. The great error of the Exodus generation, which has been the chosen analogy, right, by the Spirit of God to use to help us understand a lot of these things that we've been understanding in chapters 3 and 4, their great error namely was this, that they mistakenly thought that they could disregard God's Word. They could disregard God's revealed will but still received the blessings and the promises that he received. And now here in verses 12 and 13, it seems as though that the preacher who was inspired to write this sermonic letter, he now addresses those in his original audience who, in disregard of his exhortations and his warnings up until this point, think that their personal disdain of God's revealed will in his Son somehow will not be applied to them Guilty, their guilty account on the last day of judgment. So he, what he's doing here in, in verses 12 and 13 is he's saying, for all of you who think that these exhortations and this revealed spoken word of God through his son in this last age that I've been telling you about, uh, understand that as you ignore that and you have the passive sort of Christianity, if you allow me that phrase, for the purposes of my sermon. If, if you think that you're going to disdain God's revealed will. And it's not going to be brought up at the end of this age on judgment day. You have another thing coming. Alright. That's what he's got after here. And so to remove this wrong way of thinking. And to offer what I'm saying the first prompting. To become an engaged Christian. To live as one who's really laboring and sincerely wanting. Getting uh, enter or into the, the rest that lies at the end of the life. He produces two things here for their consideration. You have them in your notes. The first one is the discerning nature of God's Word. The discerning nature of God's Word. In verse 12, we have three descriptives of the Word of God, and we have two functionalities. The Word of God is, first of all, quick. You see that? That's the first descriptive. Secondly, it's powerful. And the third descriptive is it's sharp and that leads into its two functions. It's piercing and dividing of the sunder of the soul and spirit and it's a discerner of the thoughts of the heart. Beloved, this statement regarding God's word, notice it flows directly out of verse 11 with its emphasis on don't fall short in disobedience. Don't fall short in disobedience and understand this is how you don't fall short in disobedience by an understanding of the use of God's revealed will, that is His Word. Why do I say this? I say this because unbelief, as mentioned in verse 11, and disobedience, they are always specific in nature. Meaning that disobedience or unbelief is always disobedience to something that's been revealed. Right? So in verse 11, to fall short in disobedience, to fall short in unbelief, is to go against and disobey a revealed will of God. And that's what he's been doing in chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3 leading up to the exhortation. This is what God has revealed to you. Don't fall short. Don't come short. Don't fall in disobedience to the revealed will of God. To act in unbelief, mentioned in verse 11. To act in disobedience demands that an expressed revelation has been given. A law has been given. This is exactly what we see elsewhere in Scripture. That where there is a law given, where God reveals something in His Word, there's opportunity for disbelief and disobedience. Look in your notes at Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Paul uses uh, this sort of thinking this way. Where there is no law, there is no sin, or there is no transgression. Again, in Romans 7, seven, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And therefore, these early Christians, they were being reminded that God's word, God's revealed word, through His Son, and subsequently through the Apostles, was that which would keep them from the extremes of what he mentioned back in chapter 3, verse 13, the deceitfulness of sin. That's why he's bringing to their forefront and their understanding the importance of the discerning nature of God's word. It's that very thing that's going to keep you from going from an engaged Christian to lingering down in the passivity Christianity realm and getting blinded by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what he's doing here. God's word mustn't ever be disregarded by us who hope to enter his heavenly rest. Let's look at the first description of God's word here given to us in verse 12. He says the word of God is quick. The word of God is quick. Some of your translations, I like this translation too. The word of God is alive. It's living. Back in chapter one, verse two, We were told that God hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. This revealed word from our God through His Son we learn here is not merely words that are preserved and kept pure, as our confession of faith says, and handed down to us on these ancient manuscripts that are covered in dust and are just merely words that were talked about a long time ago but now are silent. No, the word of God we're being taught here is living, it is alive. In fact, the words of God we know, as you see in your sermon notes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, have always been alive. The, from the very moment they're ever revealed in redemptive history, they never cease to be alive. Look at the, the, the selection of Scripture I gave you in 1 Peter one twenty three. Being born again, in the context here, talking about conversion, being born again, not of a corruptible seed. This is a privilege of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. Being born again, not of a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. How? By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Not only we see in First 1 Peter 1.23 is the word of God eternally and perpetually alive, but also we see that from that passage it possesses the same life-giving energy that God the Spirit grants to a sinner upon conversion. Did you see that? Being born again not of a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible how? By the word of God, which liveth, which is alive. As a living word, all the promises, as well as all the threatenings, beloved, they're still in effect. And in part, this is what makes the living word so effectual in our hearts by the Spirit, which leads us to the second description. It's powerful. It's powerful. These words and these promises, they're still alive because they're still in effect. The end of the age hasn't happened And so since they're alive, the Spirit of God takes these living words, and now through an act, a supernatural act, makes them powerful. Or the word could be translated energetic, active, effectual. Meaning that as an instrument of God's Spirit, God's Word, His living Word, it's full of activity. Whether it's for salvation, whether it's for edification, or whether it's for judgment, the word of God will never go out without producing some result. God's word is always accomplishing that which God sends it out to accomplish. There's this beautiful passage I want to draw your attention to that demonstrates how that this living word by the use of the power of the use of the spirit becomes powerfully effectual in bringing about all of God's decreative purposes in the created world. And it's in Isaiah fifty-five, eleven. Look with me there. Where the prophet says, inspired by God's spirit. Um, he, God's speaking through the prophet here. And God says, My word that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. Notice this. And it shall prosper In the thing where to I sent it. In other words, it's going to prosper in this specific occasion that I had it spoken. This is awesome revelation to us. Because have you ever felt at times you've read God's word and you didn't get some sort of emotional, warmy, fuzzy feeling from reading it? Well, beloved, that doesn't mean that it's not accomplishing anything, Okay. There's other times when you read it where it just truly, there's this experiential element where we're creatures made up of emotions where the, the Word of God being alive and acted and energized, made effectual by the Spirit, truly does meet us where we're at in our lives. Amen? And, and, and we sense that our souls really have been moved They've been blessed by the reading of the word. Sometimes in family worship, it can seem mechanical. Other times, it seems like you're having family worship in the presence of God and the angels himself. Okay? But the point here is that every time the word goes out, you speak it in the workplace, you speak it to an unconverted family member, so forth and so on. God will use his word because it is powerful, it's living. His Spirit utilizes as an instrument to bring about all of those things that He has decreed from the foundations of the world to come to pass. This passage that we just looked at from Isaiah along with our text today, it effectually teaches us that God utilizes His Word to move forward all of creation to fulfill His decrees, and on the day of judgment, that Gospel Word will lay bare the hearts of all men. This understanding, then, I hope you would agree with me. It places God's revealed will, which the wilderness generation had a disdain for. They wanted to reject, and thus they fell short. This, then, I hope you'd agree, understanding its liveliness, its power, what God intends to do with His Word. It gives us an understanding, as the church of God, that His Word has a very prominent position, amen, in the house of of the living God. We're not here for any other reason. Beloved. Than to worship God. And hear God speak to us. And reveal himself to us. Through his word. And so. Our settling our hearts down for 45 minutes. Or with Pastor Doug sometimes an hour and 10 minutes. Or if you're at the Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary Conference. Paul Washer's preaching an hour and a half. You know season or session. Beloved. That's what we're gathering for. Because God's word is what? Alive. And it's powerful. And it's what he uses to propel us forward in his fear, properly speaking, to enter into that heavenly rest. The devil wishes nothing more than to weaken the trustworthiness of God's word in order that he may minimize what it here is being talked about, its power and his, its effectiveness. And so therefore, as the church of God, therefore you as a Christian in your own personal lives, you must watch, you must be on guard for any subtlety, any wile of the devil to bring any sort of doubt or creeping suspicion against its sufficiency in your life. And not only that, but also its guidance for the matters of your faith and practice. Because the devil wants to do nothing more than to silence the living Word of God, the power of the Word of God. And what's one way to do that? To bring doubt and suspicion upon the Word of God. With all of that said, just as a side note, have a firm understanding about the preservation of God in the authority of His revealed Word. That's a doctrine, the preservation of Scripture. Study that. Learn about it. We can talk about it amongst ourselves. It's so important to gird up underneath you that children, this Bible is God's authoritative voice in the world in which you live. And the very thought that He would speak His Word, reveal it, being alive, knowing it's powerful, knowing that it's going to be the discerner and the guider of those who profess they follow Him as sons and daughters, so forth and so on. The very thought that He would bring it into creation that's what this printed book is. It's part of creation right here. But the very thought that he would inspire men to write it and bring it in creation, and then allow it to be corrupt, calls into great suspicion and doubt the very power and the authority of God's Word. No matter how you shake the argument, if you believe there's errors and corruptions in here, you're caught into question the providential preservation of a sovereign God who wants to ensure that you make it and enter into his rest, giving you a manual that somehow or another is going to mislead you or somehow or another give you an, a, a, an error message of how to get it unto the end. Get back here on my message. Here we go. One key aspects. What of the key aspects of the power of the effectiveness that's being talked about in verse 12 of this second descriptive of God's word, we see that one of its aspects of effectiveness The text in verse 12 identifies it as being sharp. This leads us then to the third descriptive and also its functionality. And that is its sharpness, its piercing, its dividing, and its a discerner. The prior descriptors of it being alive and being powerful they properly prepare us for what now is truly, I think, the thrust of the writer's intention here of discerning God's Word. And it is this. To motivate the individual who's lingering as a passive Christian pilgrim and falsely placing hope in the fact that they can disregard God's revealed Word and still enter His heavenly rest. Now we're getting here with this third descriptive and its function to remove and to jolt them. I believe that it's right here at this descriptive in the following functions of the Word of God that we get to the core of this prompting that's contained in verses 12 and 13. It's intended to jolt that sort of listener out of their comfort zone. And furthermore, it's, it's, it's intended to jolt the listener to take seriously where it is they're going to place themselves every Lord's Day under the preaching of God's Word. Because the purpose of God's word, we've seen, is to help you uh, in the command of verse 11 to labor unto the end to enter into the heavenly rest. God's word here, we see, is likened unto a two-edged sword or a knife. And children, perhaps in your, your schooling, you know, you have scissors. Uh, sometimes they're dull. And then as you get older, mom let you use uh, an exacto knife. And the exacto knife in craft making, right? That's the one you've got to wait until you're a little bit older. Why? Because mom knows the precision of that blade is so sharp. It's almost like a surgeon's knife, that if it is barely touches your skin, it's going to cut. And in a sense, what's being conveyed here is that the Word of God is sharper even than that. It's the sharpest, of, sharpest thing that any could ever be uh, created or made out of steel. And it is the very thing that we know at the end of this age, that will be used as the discerner, as the great judge, to, we, to to wield upon the lives of men and women to discern whether or not they deserve eternal life or not. How do I know that? I've given it to you in your in your sermon notes. The Lord Jesus Christ is referred to in Revelations 1.16 as a yielding this two-edged sword out of His mouth in all of His glory. You have this Symbolic language here uh, uh, in Revelation one sixteen, where it says out of his mouth, it's referring to Jesus Christ in the vision, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. This is his word. He's coming back on that last day, not as a humble baby. He's coming back yielding his word, which is the discerner of men's thoughts and hearts. And his countenance, notice was, as the sun shineth, In his strength. This reminds us of Isaiah 60 reading this morning. Upon this great and dreaded day, men will be exposed by the very living Word of God, Jesus Christ Himself, using this two edged sword. And men's most secret thoughts were being taught here, and their purposes, including their self justifications, their self excusings, they all will be. Just uh, They all will be judged by the Word of God. It's the two-edged sword that will cut through all of the self-excuses. This comparison to a sharp and a piercing knife, it causes us to appreciate the tremendous and vital nature of God's Word in our created world. This nature... When affected by the Spirit, it penetrates beyond the outer surface of a person's life into their innermost recesses. I can only look at the outside. You can only look at me on the outside. On the outside. But God's Word is being taught here that it goes all the way to the inner recesses of our hearts. Nothing can stop it. It's, it's, it's so powerful that despite how much we try to run from it, despite how much we try to blunt our consciences, When it comes to bear open before our minds, it pierces all the way to the innermost parts of our being. That's why, as A.J. said this morning, it was such a good observation that when the Lord Jesus Christ engaged with the Pharisees, what did He do when He engaged with Satan? What did He do when He engaged with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which were servants of Satan? He engaged in what? With the piercing truth of God's Word, didn't He? I say this often, and it's worth repeating, Beloved, we need to know good systematic theology. We need to know the historic creeds of the church and the confessions that uh, preserved biblical truth. But let it never be said that we're more knowledgeable of those things than we are the very word of God. Because as we learned in our New Testament reading, it's going to be the word of God that equips us to answer the naysayers and the challengers of the church and the gospel. He calls it in verse number 12, a discerner. By calling the word of God a discerner, notice he's applying to it these characteristics of a wise person, right? It's interesting language that he's using. By calling it a discerner, what he means here is it's moral exactness, it's moral sharpness, it's moral clarity. The word of God, as if it were, is the very plumb line by which God will measure all of our lives, it will be that which peels back the layers of deceit to reveal the most hidden thoughts and purposes of everyone listen closely that have refused in their pride his revealed will through his son it's important distinction on the last day when Christ comes as Revelation 1.16 describes him in His glory as this conquering warrior yielding His Word with its moral exactness, every man, boy and girl, will come before His white throne. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, all the forces of the Gentiles we learned this morning will fall before Him, bow the knee, confess He is Lord. There's no other way out now. You have to reckon with the conquering King. The word of God will be the immoral exactness where we'll peel back, will lay open the life of every single person except, except those who are covered under the blood of the Lamb. Beloved, the Christian is not going to come under this scrutiny, x-ray, this harsh uh, laying open of their lives. It goes completely contrary to everything that verse 3 in chapter 4 says we've already possessed which is peace with God, peace of conscience. But the person who the writer's writing here, the person that may be sitting in the church today, who still has a disdain for God's Word, he's revealed truth, but with their pride, they won't bow to the authority of that Word. They won't uh, uh, confess and repent and acknowledge their sins. They have every reason to fear and be uh, filled with trepidation that on this day, Christ... And all of His glory will use His moral exact word to do what others cannot do. Open up every secret compartment of your life. I don't know about you, but that's petrified to think about. You've heard preachers talk about these sort of illustrations they use. You know, it's a big auditory. the you know, screens going to come up and your life's going to be up there. You know, I, I don't know how far I go with that illustration. It just might be you in the throne room by yourself with the Lord of Lords, the one who you have knew. Your conscience, Romans 1 talks about this, your conscience was telling you you have a Creator. You ignored it. You suppressed the truth of unrighteous. And now you have to reckon with Him. Now you must reckon with Him. This brings us at this point that one may mistakenly say to themselves, I can escape and mock Christ and His revealed will. I can escape and mock God and His Word. And I can avoid Him. I can avoid His Word. I can can avoid His church my whole entire life and really never concern myself with such things. And perhaps everything will just work out okay. Well, just in case someone were to fall into that ditch, he takes us to the omniscience of God in verse 13. Look with me at verse 13. Verse 13, and we'll close with our observations out of this passage. After seeing how the word of God is is used, he says in verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we will have to do. In verse 13, the inspired writer provides really, I guess you could say an exegetical explanation of verse number 12. Meaning this, Since the Word is a revelation of God Himself, here the character of that Word is proved by the character of God, the One who spoke it. Here we are taught that nothing in all of God's creation is hidden, as we sung in our hymn before this message, is hidden from His eye. Rather, as the text says in verse 13, all things are naked and open before Him. And this expression laid open before him is meant to be graphic. It's meant to be shocking to this first century church because the idea conveys of one being completely defenseless, helpless on that day. One commentator offers something that I thought was helpful. He says, quote, it's as if being thrown onto your backside Bodies which lie on their belly would scarcely be considered naked because one could curl up and still defend themselves. For they can still cover themselves. However, those lying on their backs are laid open to the view in all of their noblest and most distinguishing parts. Yet there's another insight that I think that I agree with more is what the original author was conveying here to this first century Jewish audience that would have shocked them to the core. This other insight is offered by one who suggests that all things are naked and laid open under the eye of him we have to do, would be connected to what the original Jewish readers understood about the detailed process of the priests cutting open and cleaning the inward parts of the sacrificial lamb which was offered in the temple worship. And so in other words, many theologians believe this phraseology, of what 's being talked about when we stand before the all penetrating omniscience of God on that day will be the same as seeing all the inward parts of a sacrificial animal, ironically, me and Naomi we were uh, sitting in her bed reading, and um, not last night but uh, Friday night, and uh, out of the blue uh, parents you get this sometimes we uh, she 's reading. Uh, Oh, maybe you're reading a book, perhaps, uh, about this. And she was reading a book, and I was reading a book. And she goes, Dad, um, on Thanksgiving, uh, do you put your hand in the turkey, clean out all of its innards? And I was like, well, yeah, i, I do that. That's no big deal. It's just part of life. You just got to clean it out. And she goes, oh, that's gross, Dad. I would never clean out the inwards of the turkey. I would never do that. And as I was studying for this, I thought, you know, that's, that's kind of how they would have thought. They'd been like, oh, man. You know, I'm going to be literally cut open and displayed before God, and I can't hide anything. You know, not in a graphic, gruesome sense in that sense, but you get the picture here. That's what many believe that this inspired writer would have been conveying to these first century Jews who would have well understanding of how the priests prepared the different sacrificial animals. Now, while the exact understanding of the symbolism may not be real clear, the meaning of it is, isn't it? There will be a day for all those who reject the promises and the commands of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, you, you will have to stand before your maker and your judge. And you will have to reckon with Him. And if you are unwilling to reckon with Him now, if you're willing to reject all of these exhortations and these warnings that the writer has been lifting up, you won't be able to do it on that day. You won't, have, you won't be able to get away on that day. There will be no more time. That's why the inspired words, and we with this, of King David in Psalm 95 played such an important part of this overall scripture uh, and this argument in Hebrews. And they were so sobering because David said, and this writer kept emphasizing, today is the day. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And so for the believer... What do we do with this text as we walk away today? Well, we ultimately see the great importance of God's Word for us. It's usefulness as an instrument in His living way uh, to continually discern our thoughts. Uh, You know, just because you become a Christian and I become a Christian, it doesn't mean that we still don't think wrong sometimes. And so the way we would apply this uh, prompting to continue to labor unto the end, that we enter into heavenly rest, is that we place ourselves, especially every Lord's Day, in a church context that's going to be faithful to the Word of God and tell us what it means. We place ourselves in relationships one with another that will be relationships to where we can be honest with uh, the exhortations that we were commanded to do in chapter 3. Remember that? Uh, Daily exhort one another. Uh, so this is how we apply this. We, we see that God's word is very instrumental and very important in our pilgrim journey as engaged Christians wanting to enter into heavenly rest. And then the non-believer, of course. You come to a message like this today and we've, we've spoken a lot of the last day. We've spoken a lot about the omniscience of God, meaning he has the maximum knowledge of all things, more than any mere created being could ever have. And he knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows whether or not your profession's fake, Or he knows whether or not it's sincere from your heart. And you will have to stand before him someday. And as King David had said, today's the day where you can humble yourself before uh, his holy throne and say, I want to be one of Christ's. I want to be saved. I do not want to face on that dreadful day the judgment of Christ's piercing eye. Look To the love and the grace that is displayed upon the cross of Jesus Christ. God is sending forth a message that there is reconciliation and hope for you to come unto Him. And that gospel message, that cross of Christ, is laid right before you today. And so, in a sense, there is a great call that goes out in the wedding banquet. The wedding's prepared. The food is on the table. Will you humble your pride and come and receive the free gift of God's grace this very day? Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for preserving your word. God, give us greater faith, we pray, to know that, Lord, your word is alive, that it is powerful. And O God, if your spirit would be so pleased to activate its usefulness, its instrumentality, Lord, it has the ability to cut through lies, to cut through hardened, calloused hearts, and penetrate, as we learned today, even the innermost recesses of a man. We pray, O God, that you would continue to use your word, that you would protect it, preserve it, and ensure its instrumentality in the ages to come. God, raise up, we pray, faithful men who will God guard it and and faithfully, Lord, uh, defend it in our age in which we live in the age to come. We do pray, O oh Father, that you would help us to see today as we walk away from the message uh, just how, Lord, beneficial your word is in our lives. Oh Lord, we pray that you would prepare us to enter into chapter 14, uh, verse 14 next week as Lord, we've gotten a sense of a prompting of, Lord, sticking close to Your Word, understanding that You see all things, to labor unto the heavenly rest, Lord. Next week we will see that Jesus is there. He is waiting for us. And not only is He there passively waiting, but He is intimately engaged on our behalf in the heavenly realm now. Lord, interceding for us, sympathizing with us, and Lord, I pray that this will encourage the hearts of your weary people. Lord, bless us, help us, preserve us. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts emboldened to persevere. And may you receive on that great day all of the glory. We bless you and we thank you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.